0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel any time. Can I be real for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better, you really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. And nobody has to, because you can do it, if you have the right tools, and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. May 7, 1957 was a lovely spring morning in the town of Hexham in Northumberland, England. And on that day, two young girls were walking to church with a mutual friend. The girls were sisters, 11 year old Joanna and 6 year old Jacqueline Pollock. Hexham was one of those quaint little English villages that seems somehow lost in time. The girls' parents, John and Florence Pollock, ran a successful grocery delivery service in town. The little girls were young and carefree and it seemed like nothing terrible could ever happen in such an idyllic setting. That is, until it did. They didn't see the car coming until it was too late. The driver was a woman who had taken an overdose of aspirin and a in an effort to kill herself. Witnesses said they saw the woman driving erratically, but could do nothing to prevent what happened next. As she slammed into the children sending them flying through the air like cricket balls, as one witness described. Joanna and Jacqueline were killed instantly. The little boy died on the way to the hospital. The incident and subsequent trial were major headlines throughout England for a little while. But when the notoriety died down, that still left the grieving parents to pick up the pieces of their lives and move on. The Pollocks were inconsolable, Florence sunk into a deep depression while John turned to religion for comfort. He was raised a devout Catholic and he prayed nightly for his daughter's return. One evening he claimed to have seen a vision of the girls returning to him in the form of twins. He tried sharing his vision with Florence but this only set her off. Florence wasn't religious and the thought of any sort of false hope John promised only enraged her further. The ensuing arguments between the couple nearly drove them to divorce. But despite the constant fighting, Florence became pregnant again. On October 4, 1958, she gave birth to healthy twin girls. This was doubly odd because not only did the twin births seem to line up with John's vision, but the doctor who had examined Florence early on said he only detected one heartbeat in the womb. All this helped convince John that his vision had come true. They named the girls Gillian and Jennifer. John came to see them as a miracle in human form. As proof that his two daughters had returned to him, he pointed towards a particular circular birthmark on Jennifer's waist that matched one Jacqueline had, as well as another odd mark over Jennifer's right eye that bore an eerie similarity to a scar Jacqueline had in the same place. Despite being twins, Gillian didn't bear either of these marks. When the twins were just a few months old, the family moved to another town called Whitley Bay. And it was here where things began to get even stranger. As soon as the girls were old enough to talk, they began to ask for certain toys Joanna and Jacqueline had once owned, even asking for specific dolls by name. These were names that Joanna and Jacqueline gave to the dolls and that the twin girls should not have known. What was even odder still was that all these toys were kept stored in a box in the attic, and the twins shouldn't have known they existed at all. When the toys were brought down from the attic and given to the girls, they divided them up between them, with each of the girls instantly gravitating toward the toys that belonged to Joanna and Jacqueline, respectively. As the girls grew older, they began to develop other mannerisms and behaviors John and Florence swore were unique to their dead daughters. On one occasion, Gillian pointed toward the birthmark over Jennifer's eye and correctly said that was where Jacqueline had been struck in the head with a bucket, leaving a scar. At the time of her death, Jacqueline had been having difficulty learning to write. It had a very particular way of holding a pencil straight up in her fist. Jennifer developed the exact same mannerism. Such strange behaviors continued over the next few years. As they grew older, the girls often spoke of remembering details of Joanna and Jacqueline's lives. On a return trip to Hexham, the girls were able to point out landmarks and identify specific streets, even though they had never been there before. The twins were also terrified of passing cars to the point where the girl's mother would have to console them out of hysterics every time a car ever came too close. Once, Florence heard the girls discussing the accident with details they could not have known. Jennifer would even rest her head on Gillian's lap sometimes and describe how blood came pouring out of her eyes. News of the strange events surrounding the girls began appearing in newspapers around the globe. They eventually caught the attention of University of Virginia psychologist Eden Stevenson. He visited the family for the first time when the girls were four years old, noting that, although the girls were identical twins, they were physically developing differently, with each girl growing towards a unique build that appeared to line up closely with photographs of Jacqueline and Joanna. Although the girls' memories of any sort of past life began to fade by the time they were five, Dr. Stevenson continued to study them throughout their lives, all the way up to and after Florence's death in 1979 and John's death six years later. Although as adults the twins claimed to have no memory of the strange events from their childhood, In 1981, Gillian did describe having a series of lucid visions of her playing in a sandbox in Wickham, which was something Joanna had done when she was three. Gillian had never been to Wickham, yet even still, she could describe the town perfectly. Stevenson would go on to write a dozen books on the subject of people who claim to have memories of past lives. The story of the Pollock twins would be cited as one of the best examples of proof that the human soul is sometimes reborn into another body after death. In the case of the Pollock twins, skeptics often point out that John was a longtime believer in the idea that people could be reborn into another body, even before his daughters were born. Remember, these were two grieving parents who were desperate to have their children back. It's certainly possible that the couple wanted this so badly that they began to imagine seeing traits exhibited by their deceased children in the living twins, and perhaps even encouraged it in some instances. Stevenson admitted this was a possibility, although he ultimately came to the conclusion that there were just too many coincidences and bits of unusual evidence that could not be easily ignored. The idea of reincarnation is one that has existed for thousands of years across multiple cultures. And whereas there isn't any definitive proof that we humans are reborn after death, some of the stories you'll hear about are downright disturbing. I'm Nate Hale, and I'm back! And this is The Conspirators. (music) Belief in the human soul and its ability to persist after death dates back before recorded history. Neanderthal tribes developed a custom of burying food, weapons, and other necessities along with their dead just in case they needed them wherever they ended up next. Some ancient tribes even painted the bodies with a red ochre, which some researchers believe may have represented a belief in the body's resurrection. During the 19th century, Sir Edward Tyler, a professor of anthropology at Oxford University, began promoting the theory of animism, which he defined as the doctrine of souls and other spiritual beings in general. Or in other words, animism states that everything has a soul, from humans to animals to trees and rocks. Although Tyler became one of animism's biggest proponents in Western Europe, he didn't originate the idea. Variations on animism can be found throughout Africa, Southeast Asia, China, Tibet, Japan, and Central and South America. The term reincarnation is taken from a Latin phrase meaning, entering the flesh again. As far as the world's many religions go, many Eastern religions accept reincarnation as a natural part of the cycle of life. Two of them in particular, Hinduism and Buddhism, share more than a few things in common with regards to their belief in what happens to the soul after death. Whereas Christianity proposes the soul rises to another ethereal plane of existence, both Buddhism and Hinduism propose that the soul can stick around here on Earth and even start life over again. Hindu traditions call it samsara, or the transmigration of the soul, the belief that everyone gets a cosmic do-over. Following a person's death, that soul then inhabits a new body, and from there, the new individual becomes answerable to their good or bad deeds in their previous life. Whichever way things go, in either case, the individual gets a chance to do even better in their new skin, and thus be rewarded or punished over and over as the cycle continues. Buddhists, on the other hand, don't believe in the concept of reward and punishment as people's souls are reborn. They also prefer to think of it more as a rebirth rather than a reincarnation of the soul. One of the other key differences is that Buddhists believe this cycle of rebirth can be broken once the individual finally lets go of all earthly attachments. Variations on the same theme of reincarnation can be found in other cultures throughout history. Taoist documents from China's Han Dynasty, dating back to around 200 B.C., claim that the philosopher Lao Tzu appeared on Earth as different people in different times over the centuries. The Judaic mystical offshoot known as Kabbalah teaches a belief in Gilgul, the transmigration of souls from one body to the next. Julius Caesar recorded that the ancient ruins of Gaul, Britain, and Ireland all shared a belief in the soul's rebirth. The ancient Greek philosopher and mathematician, Pythagoras created his own religion with the immortality of the soul being one of its core tenets. For the most part, modern Judaism and Christianity don't teach the concept of reincarnation. Despite this, a recent poll pointed out that nearly 25% of Americans believe in reincarnation, and that number was even higher in the UK. In a 1928 interview, Henry Ford made a rather shocking admission when he claimed the secret to his success as a manufacturer and visionary came from reincarnation. His knowledge that his soul had been born and reborn many times over allowed him to level up and gain increasing knowledge each time around. In the case of the Pollock twins, despite being a devout Catholic, John Pollock remained deeply interested in the concept of reincarnation throughout his life. Which is where most skeptics think all the supposed unusual circumstances surrounding the man's twins actually stem from. It's almost certain that Pollock was aware of and probably influenced by another very famous story that emerged from Pueblo, Colorado in 1952. Virginia Teague was a normal 29-year-old housewife married to an insurance salesman named Herbert Teague. In November of that year, Herb and Virginia were sitting around socializing with a close friend named Maury Bernstein. He was a local businessman, and as a hobby, he'd begun practicing hypnotism. That day he offered to show off his talents and attempt to hypnotize Virginia. Herb was surprised how easily Virginia fell into a trance and responded to his voice. So he decided to take things a step further and try something he'd always wanted to do. Regress a subject back before birth. That's when things got strange. As soon as he instructed Virginia to remember a time back before she was born, she began speaking in an odd Irish brogue. Upon being questioned further, Virginia told Bernstein and her startled husband that her name was Bridget Murphy, but she went by the nickname Bridie. She said she was born in Cork, Ireland in 1798. When Bernstein awoke Virginia from her trance, all trace of the Irish accent was gone, along with all memory of what she had told the men about her past life. Over the course of several more hypnotism sessions, Virginia began to fill in the details of her past life as Bridie Murphy. She said she was the daughter of Duncan Murphy, a local barrister, and that her mother's name was Kathleen. She said she was raised a Protestant, and that she lived in a small wooden house on the edge of a forest. She told them she had an older brother named Duncan, as well as a younger brother who died in infancy. She described the school she attended, which was run by a stern headmistress called Mrs. Strain. She married a barrister named Sean Brian McCarthy when she was 17. The two of them moved to Belfast not long after, where they lived happily until her tragic death in 1864. Throughout her various recountings of her past life story, Virginia was able to describe all sorts of minute details, including specific names, places, and dates from her life as Bridie. She would even sometimes sing Irish songs and recount old Irish folk tales to Bernstein. She even used all sorts of old Irish slang and other obscure terms that only someone with an extensive knowledge of Ireland during the 19th century should know. Perhaps even odder still, Virginia was even able to remember past her point of death and that she had witnessed her own funeral from above and could describe her tombstone in great detail. Bernstein was so excited by his sessions with Virginia that he began to research what she told him further. He was able to confirm many of the historical details she described, although one thing he was never able to discover were any actual birth records from Cork before 1864. Nonetheless, Bernstein wrote down everything he learned which became a best-selling book in 1956, The Search for Bridie Murphy. The book became an overnight bestseller. The recordings he made of his sessions with Virginia only added to the public fervor. This is probably the time when the idea of reincarnation went mainstream and took over the public's imagination. Dozens of books, movies, and TV shows about the subject were made. Hollywood even made a hit movie out of Bernstein's book. But despite all the public fervor, there were plenty of skeptics following the book's publication. Several journalists and other skeptics began to fact-check the book and found it full of details that just didn't add up. For one thing... Wooden houses like the one Virginia described weren't being built back in Cork at that time. Most houses from that era were made of brick. Virginia also spoke of sleeping in an iron bed, which was something that hadn't even been invented yet. Furthermore, many of the places and landmarks Virginia described didn't appear to exist at all at any time in history. Not to mention the simple fact that no records could be found of anyone named Bridget Bridie Murphy that fit into the timeline Virginia described. Other suspicious details began to pop up about Virginia as well. It turns out that although she claimed to have never having been exposed to Irish culture, she did have an Irish aunt, who just so happened to have an Irish neighbor who lived across the street from Virginia's childhood home. The neighbor's name? Bridie Murphy Corkle. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Virginia may have been displaying something called cryptomnesia, which is something that occurs when the subject's subconscious begins to pick up buried memories and outside cues and merges them into an imaginative fantasy. Some psychologists have pointed out the difficulty with hypnosis is that it opens the mind up to all sorts of suggestion, as well as opening the floodgates for the imagination to fill in details when questioned by the hypnotist during a trance. Some skeptics, who were even less kind, said that Bernstein and Virginia cooked the whole story up in order to sell books and deceive the public. Although apart from a few interviews she gave throughout her life, Virginia never seemed too keen on capitalizing on her fame, nor did she make much money from selling her story. She died living a quiet, relatively anonymous life in 1999. There's been no word yet on if she's come back. The skeptical view on reincarnation is that all these stories can usually be explained away as a combination of simple coincidence, faulty memories on the part of the subject, as well as people looking for patterns that just aren't there. During the 1950s, Ian Stevenson would become the premier expert on the study of past lives. He was the chair of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, but it was his deep interest in parapsychology that drew him to his lifelong study of reincarnation. In 1968, Chester Carlson, the wealthy inventor of the Xerox copy machine, died of a heart attack. He left behind a million dollars to UVA under the condition that the money be used to fund Stevenson's research into the paranormal. That money allowed Stevenson to devote himself full-time to the study of life beyond death. Throughout his life, Stevenson cataloged more than 2,500 cases of people who claimed to have lived past lives. One such case came from Sri Lanka, where a toddler informed her mother that she had once been another child who drowned in an obscure town named Kataragama after her brother pushed her into the river. The girl was able to describe numerous details about her former home that, upon investigation, mostly turned out to be correct. This included the discovery of a mentally challenged young man who did indeed once have a little sister that he caused to drown. Overall, 27 of 30 verifiable statements the girl made about her past life were able to be confirmed by Dr. Stevenson. Stevenson published numerous books on the subject throughout his life, culminating in his magnum opus, Reincarnation and Biology, published in 1997. But despite writing and studying the subject extensively, some skeptical researchers have pointed out many deep flaws in Stevenson's logic. They claim that Stevenson constantly made connections that simply weren't there. And in many of the cases he documented about children recalling past memories, There were countless other ways they could have come by such knowledge. Interestingly, although Stevenson throughout his life never publicly stated a firm belief in reincarnation, merely that it may have been possible, he did set in place a test following his death in an attempt to prove the existence of an afterlife. Nearly 40 years ago he purchased a combination lock and set the code himself using a mnemonic device taking the secret of that code with him to the grave. He informed his colleagues that if there was any sort of life after death, he would pass on the mnemonic code to open the lock. Stevenson died in 2007, but to date, the lock remains closed. Carl Sagan in his book, The Demon Haunted World, once described reincarnation as a subject that deserved further study. Sagan didn't necessarily believe in reincarnation, but he at least left open the door to further exploration, since he thought there was room for further experimental testing. And yet, despite the number of skeptics of reincarnation, there are some stories of people describing past lives that remain difficult to fully discount. In the early 2000s, a story went viral about a little boy named James Leininger, who many people, including his own parents, believed may have once been a World War II fighter pilot who was shot down over the Pacific. James was born in 1998, and by the time he was two, he had developed a fascination with airplanes. This, in and of itself, wasn't particularly unusual. But by the time the boy was able to speak, he also began to exhibit an unusual knowledge of the inner workings of specific aircraft, particularly World War II-era fighters and bombers. His mother, Andrea, insisted that they never let the boy watch any TV shows about World War II. Yet he was still able to describe in detail the steps involved in a routine pre-flight check before taking off for a combat mission. He also pointed out to his mother the drop tank on one of his toys, the part where a bomber would deploy the explosives. He was also later able to describe other parts of a plane's cockpit and other details using technical jargon it seems unlikely a three-year-old should know. It terrified his mother when James began waking up screaming in the middle of the night about how he was in a burning plane crash and couldn't get out. These night terrors became so frequent that Andrea took James to a counselor who specialized in past life regression. Through hypnosis, the counselor began to coax further details out of the boy's mind he began to recall that he had once flown Corsair fighter planes that took off from a U.S. aircraft carrier called the Natoma, stationed in the Pacific. He was even able to name his best friend on the aircraft carrier, a fellow pilot named Jack Larson. James's father, Bruce, did a little research and was astonished to learn that not only was there really an aircraft carrier called the Natoma in the Pacific during the war, but one of the pilots who served on board was a man named Jack Larson. The little boy would eventually begin to say that his name had been James before, and that he had died in the Battle of Iwo Jima. He even began signing his crayon drawings as James III. Bruce did some more research and learned the only pilot from the squadron shot down during Iwo Jima fitting all these clues was a man named James B. Houston Jr., Now, of course, these are all some eerie details, but once again, skeptics point out this entire story might be nothing more than a case of confirmation bias. Or in other words, everyone involved wanted this story to be true so badly that they fit the facts to maintain their narrative. Now, I'll freely admit I'm pretty skeptical on the concept of reincarnation myself. But if I had to pick out one case that makes me question my own beliefs more than any other, it would have to be that of an Englishwoman named Dorothy Eady, who later went by the name... She was born in the London suburb of Blackheath in 1904. She lived a rather normal childhood until one day, at the age of three, Dorothy tripped and tumbled down a flight of stairs. The girl's panicked parents called the local doctor, but when the doctor examined the little girl, he confirmed the terrified parent's worst fear and pronounced her dead. But that's not where the story ends. The doctor left to fetch a nurse to help him prepare the body. But to his complete astonishment, when he returned, Dorothy was now sitting up in bed wide awake and playing as if nothing had happened. Not long after this, Dorothy began to exhibit some unusual behaviors. She began to act uncharacteristically nervous and withdrawn. She also began to constantly demand that her parents take her home, even though they were home. When her parents asked her where they thought they should take her, Dorothy was unable to articulate it. She began having vivid dreams of large ancient buildings with sweeping columns. One day while she was flipping through a children's picture book, she stopped on a picture of ancient Egypt and she blurted out to her baffled parents that this was home. Things got even stranger still when Dorothy's parents took her on a trip to the British Museum in London. When they wandered into an exhibit about ancient Egypt, Dorothy's eyes lit up. She ran up to one of the statues and began reverently kissing their feet. She kicked off her shoes and even publicly berated everyone else who hadn't taken off their shoes as well. Staring at illustrations of Seti I, the father of Ramses the Great, Dorothy happily announced to her parents that this was her real home. She also told her mother and father that she knew Seti I and that he was a kindly old man. When Dorothy's parents tried to drag her away from the exhibit, she reportedly cried out in a loud voice, speaking words in a language no one could understand. When she began speaking English again, she begged her parents not to take her away because she wanted to remain among her people. After that, Dorothy began to get into trouble at her Sunday school when she began denouncing Christianity as a failed offshoot of ancient Egyptian religions. She eventually got kicked out of school when her behavior worsened and she refused to sing a hymn that requested God curse the Egyptians. When Dorothy's parents took her to church, she disturbed the other parishioners when she told them that Christianity was similar to her own, much older religion. As Dorothy grew older, she began to visit the British Museum frequently. It was there she met a man named E.A. Wallace Budge, the keeper of Egyptian antiquities for the British Museum. Budge was impressed by Dorothy's knowledge and enthusiasm about Egyptian history. He took her under his wing and began teaching her how to read Egyptian hieroglyphics. But Budge was amazed at how quickly Dorothy picked it up. She was able to learn in a short while concepts that took some full-grown adults years to learn. Dorothy explained that it didn't feel so much like she was learning to read the ancient texts as she was remembering them. Dorothy spent much of her teenage years at the local library poring over every book on ancient Egypt she could find. During World War I, her parents sent her to live at her grandmother's house in Sussex after a bombing raid threatened their lives. It was around this time when she had just turned 15 when she began to have nightly dreams about a spirit named Hor-Ra, who told her she was the reincarnation of a woman named Ben Treshit, and that he was here to remind her of who she once was. Ben Treshit, the spirit told her, was a priestess at the temple of Seti I at Abydos in Upper Egypt. For about a year, Hor-Ra visited her in her sleep and shared further details about her past life. He said that Ben Treshit had become a consecrated virgin of the temple, but that she had broken her vows when she began having an affair with Seti I. Rather than face a painful death at the hands of the temple's high priest, Ben Treshit opted to commit suicide. Dorothy began to write down everything she learned about herself in her dreams, all of it written in ancient Egyptian. But her visions also began to affect her in other ways as well. She began sleepwalking and having vivid nightmares that proved so severe She visited a mental hospital multiple times. Dorothy dropped out of school at age 16. After that, she began frequenting several historical sites around Britain, including Stonehenge. She later moved to Plymouth and began attending art school. She spent her free time collecting Egyptian antiquities and becoming active in a political movement for an independent Egypt. She took a job writing for an Egyptian public relations magazine. It was during her time there that she met and married an Egyptian student named Iman Abdul Magid. It was her husband who finally granted Dorothy's greatest wish and took her with him back to Egypt. Upon first setting foot in Egypt, Dorothy reportedly dropped to her knees and kissed the ground, declaring that she was finally home. She would eventually have a son with Iman, who she named Seti. This is where her name of Olm Seti originates from. Olm Seti literally translates to Mother of Seti. But Dorothy's marriage didn't last... The couple divorced in 1935 after Iman got a job teaching in Iraq. Only Dorothy refused to leave her beloved Egypt. She moved to live near the Giza pyramids and it was there she met an archaeologist named Salim Hassan, who was highly impressed with Dorothy's extensive knowledge of hieroglyphics and Egyptian history. It was through Hassan that Dorothy landed a job with the Egyptian Department of Antiquities. She first worked as a secretary and draftsperson. But her artistic skills and knowledge of ancient Egypt proved so valuable to Hassan that he credited her with helping craft his ten-volume series on his excavations at Giza. Dorothy's vast knowledge and idiosyncrasies caught the attention of several renowned archaeologists from around that time. Dorothy would sometimes spend the night inside the Great Pyramid of Giza and was known to venture out at night to pray, perform rituals, and make offerings to Horus at the feet of the Great Sphinx. Despite the notoriety she began receiving among many archaeologists, Dorothy found herself out of a job in 1956, forcing her to take a job as a draftswoman in Abydos. It was at this time that she began having dreams of King Seti I. The king told her that she was on the correct path and that she needed to remain strong. He told her she should settle in a small village near his temple, and that she would be called Alm Seti forever after. Alm Seti's main job in Abydos was to copy down and translate blocks of hieroglyphics in the temple of Seti I. As well as draw up architectural plans of the site, Alm Seti proved to be remarkably good at her job. She also became known for her odd habit of removing her shoes upon entering the temple and performing rituals honoring the ancient gods who lived there. Many Egyptian scholars began to rely heavily on Alm Seti for their own research. Despite her lack of formal training, Um, Olm proved to have an extensive understanding of ancient Egyptian customs and traditions, including knowledge of folk medicine and various religious rituals. She even wrote her own book on ancient Egyptian rituals in the 1960s. On one occasion, the director of the Department of Antiquities decided to put Um, Olm claims of a past life to the test. He had her stand in complete darkness, inside a room of the temple that she had never been allowed in before and he asked her to locate and specifically identify several details in various wall paintings. Despite never having been in that room before, Alm Seti correctly identified each one of them. Alm Seti's knowledge continued to be both baffling and extremely helpful. On one occasion, she told some archaeologists to dig in one spot because she remembered there had once been a garden there. When they dug there, they found the garden of the Temple of Seti, just as she described it even though no one but Olmsetti knew it had been there. She was also able to tell them where they could find several other important artifacts. No one could explain how she got so many things right. But Olmsetti's reputation extended even beyond her knowledge of ancient sites and artifacts. Villagers who lived near her claimed she was unafraid of cobras and could spellbind them, and even get them to eat out of her hand without being bitten. She was also believed to be able to create highly effective medicinal remedies. She was said to have used the magical healing waters from a sacred pool to cure her arthritis and allow her to stop wearing glasses. She shared some of her remedies with other villagers and they too claimed to have been miraculously cured of their ailments. Although most archaeologists and scholars remained skeptical about Alm claims of reincarnation, she nevertheless maintained a stellar reputation throughout her community. There was simply no denying the woman's vast knowledge and abilities. She served as a consultant and ghostwriter on several books and research papers for some of the biggest names in the field. This was especially impressive considering she was a high school dropout. Noted Egyptologist James Allen once said about Om Seti, Sometimes you weren't sure whether Om Seti wasn't pulling your leg. Not that she was a phony in what she said or believed. She was absolutely not a con artist. But she knew that some people looked on her as a crackpot so she kind of fed into that notion and let you go either way with it. She believed enough to make it spooky, and it made you doubt your own sense of reality sometimes. In 1964, Olm Seti was originally set to retire due to a mandatory retirement age. But she continued to prove so invaluable that the Department of Antiquities allowed her to continue to work until 1969. Even after that year, she continued to serve as a consultant and tour guide to the Temple of Seti until her death on April 21, 1981. It's difficult to know what to make of Dorothy Eady, a.k.a. Om Seti. Much has often been made of her preternatural knowledge of ancient Egyptian life despite being a high school dropout. But at the same time, remember, she spent much of her life reading every book about Egypt she could get her hands on, and studying under some of the greatest scholars in the field. What's harder to explain, though, are those times when Om Seti revealed secrets about the ancient past that no one even suspected. In the 1970s, she began telling people she knew the secret location of the long-sought tomb of Nefertiti. She described it as being in an unusual place in the Valley of Kings near Tutankhamun's tomb. This went against all common beliefs since no such tombs had ever been found in the area, so Om claims were largely ignored. However, in 1976, two sonar readings were taken near Tutankhamun's tomb and produced some anomalous readings. In 1998, archaeologist Nicholas Reeves began to investigate these anomalies further and dig in the area. He managed to uncover several intact seals of the 20th dynasty scribe Wenifer, whose seals commonly adorned many other royal tombs from that era. In 2000, another radar scan produced further evidence of true previously unknown chambers deep underground. Then in 2006, another expedition penetrated into one of these chambers and found it full of extremely well-preserved equipment and supplies for mummification of Egyptian royalty. This only leads to further speculation that the other mysterious chamber could possibly be the previously undiscovered tomb of some Egyptian king. Or maybe, even a queen. Just like Olmsteadi predicted. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, and entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a bunch of new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you so much to Eddie, Matt, Vivia, Logan, Christina, Jason, Grant, and a special shout-out to Grant's daughter, Skye. Another special shout-out goes to my new friend and supporter, Susie. Just a reminder that patrons to the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, personalized cards from yours truly, and exclusive early access to new episodes, as well as exclusive access to our entire catalog of mini-episodes. Thanks so much to all of you to continue to help support our show. More people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can find us on most of your other favorite podcast apps. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, you can find us on all the big social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Feel free to reach out to me there, or send me an email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and I hope you'll be back next time.